Welcome to episode 28 of the Listening Brain Podcast. Welcome to the Listening Brain. I'm your host, Todd Houston. In this podcast, we explore childhood hearing loss through the lives of the parents and families who are on this journey and the professionals who serve them. Hi, it's Todd Houston. I just wanted to reach out to you, our really talented, wonderful listeners that we have, and just ask you if you want to join us. Yes. Would you like to be a content creator for the 3C Digital Media Network? We need you. We need content creators to come and join us. So if you have a blog, a webinar, a course, or maybe even a podcast that you'd like to do, we would love to speak with you. So please, if you have some ideas, email me at Todd, T-O-D-D, at 3cdigitalmedianetwork.com, and I'll reach out, and we can have a conversation. And so hopefully we could have you develop whatever you'd like to develop and work with us. Again, Todd at 3cdigitalmedianetwork.com, and I will be in touch. Now, back to the interview. We have a special treat on today's episode. This is actually an episode I did for my other podcast, Telepractice Today. On that podcast with my co-host, Kim Dutro-Allen, we interviewed Barbara Hecht. And Barbara, as you may know, is a is the director of Clark Schools for Hearing and Speech in Boston. And they did this wonderful study looking at telepractice policies for early intervention. And of course, they have a focus a bit more on kids with hearing loss. But they had a very good study they did with Brown University. And because she works at the Clark School, and I just knew that all of the content that we we learned, all of the information that she shared, would be a great fit for the listening brain as well. So let me introduce you to Barbara Hecht, if you don't know who Barbara is. So Barbara is the director of Clark Schools for Hearing and Speech in the Boston area, otherwise known as Clark Boston. She received her undergraduate degree in linguistics and psychology at Harvard University and her PhD in linguistics and child language at Stanford University. She has a long and accomplished career as an educator and deaf education specialist. She's also been an innovator in an advocate of distance learning. Prior to her work at, Har- at Clark School, Dr. Heck directed the John Tracy Clinic in Los Angeles, California. At Clark, Dr. Heck has been a leader in the development of teleservices for families and infants of young children. So it is great to share this interview we did with Barbara here on The Listening Brain. So Barbara, welcome to the podcast. Uh, can you 
give us a little bit more information about your background and how you arrived at Clark? Yes, I'm happy to. Um, I actually grew up in the Boston area, and then um, my husband and I made our way to California for grad school and uh, beyond. And uh, I, my doctorate is actually in linguistics and uh, with a specialty in child language development and child language disorders. Uh, and I spent the early part of my career as a professor of special education. Through my graduate students, I actually learned about deaf education and uh, found my way to um, a center in Los Angeles called John Tracy Clinic, um, which specializes in working with families of very young deaf and hard of hearing children. Um, John Tracy Clinic had a long history actually of providing distance learning to parents. It was called a correspondence course in the 1940s and 50s, um, where parents wrote letters back and forth to, to specialists. Uh, but that gradually became a distance learning program for parents. And um, in my, my time there, we also uh, started one of the first distance learning programs, training teachers of the deaf. And uh, so I was working both at the very young end <laughs> and, mm -hmm. the, and the adult end in distance learning. Um, I, a great opportunity arose for me to return, uh, my husband and I to return to our roots in, in New England. And um, for the past 10 years, I've been uh, the director of Clark's Boston area campus. And uh, when I arrived at Clark, um, Clark is now about 153 years old um, and uh, quite, quite a venerable institution uh, that was embarking on something quite uh, seen by many as quite radical, and that mm -hmm. was to um, to look at the possibility of providing telepractice for birth to three uh, and for our birth to three families. And so, when I arrived with a little bit of um, remote learning in my in my DNA, mm -hmm. um, I um, took on the role of one of the leaders of that uh, that project. And so, we um, just a little bit about Clark. First, Clark um, provides early intervention services, preschool and early childhood services, and mainstream support services to students who are deaf and hard of hearing who are in their um, neighborhood schools. <clears throat> and um, we do that in, in uh, four states across five campuses. Uh, but the opportunity to kind of dip our toe into the water telepractice came up um, in Massachusetts and our two Massachusetts campuses in partnership um, with an organization in Connecticut. And uh, so we actually um, did quite a bit of homework. We had a foundation that was, was willing to dip the toe in, in the water with us. Mm -hmm. And, um, and so we, uh, we offered our first telepractice session officially in I think January of 2013. So uh, that was that was kind of how it all started. And um, I would say, and I, I'm sure this must be true of many, many practitioners, um, we were a little skeptical about telepractice. We weren't sure if we would be able to establish uh, relationships with, with parents through the screen. Um, we weren't sure if we could really deliver uh, the same quality of, of services to families, and many of our um, many of our staff were extremely skeptical uh, when mm -hmm. we first started. Well, 
Kim and I got started uh, together at Utah State University. She was uh, one of my graduate students there. And we started uh, in a, basically it was a feasibility study to look at early intervention services for kids with hearing loss. And we had these, you know, really large Tanberg units that were point to point that we put in the homes. <laughs> they were huge things. And uh, with a monitor and all of that and, and, with that in what you're talking about, and because we were skeptical, we were doing a research study. We didn't know if it was going to work. We didn't know if we could build the same level of rapport. We didn't know if we'd see progress with the kids. I mean, we it was sort of let's try it and see what happens kind of attitude. Uh, and and fortunately, we you know <laughs> the rest is history. But we we definitely saw the the benefit there, and not only from the you know professional side of things, but the parents just love having that service available to them. Right. Well, we, we really found the same thing. Um, the interesting thing to us actually was that the, um, the more, I'll, I'll just say, the more experienced among us um, mm -hmm. were the most worried about using the technology. And we thought that, mm -hmm. that our younger staff who, you know, had been Skyping and, and communicating that way for quite a long time, we thought they mm -hmm. would be the early adopters. And in fact, it worked the other way. Um, mm -hmm. And I, I, I bet you found that too. Yeah, 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 yeah. You have to have a certain level of confidence, I think, in your um, in your abilities as a practitioner to um, to do the kind of coaching that's really required in in uh, in this modality. So well, when we we started that project, and then that evolved into a school that was set up in an early intervention program in school, Sound Beginnings, which is at Utah State University. And we had hired uh, an SLP who Kim and I both know very well. And, um, and I had that same thought. Here's this younger, vibrant SLP who's going to jump onto this technology and just run with it, you know? Mm -hmm. Not the case <laughs> at that time. Right. Uh, she struggled with it and just said, I, I'm not going to do this anymore. It's, you know, it's not for me, you know. Um, so at the time, it, was, it wasn't a good fit. Now she works for a telepractice company <laughs> and doing, <laughs> doing it full time. Um, never say never. <laughs> that's right. That's right. You train um, well. <laughs> uh, so you just never see, I mean, but at the time I, I had the same thought. I thought, you know, this young person, and I was just looking at the technology aspect of it. Right. They love technology. You know, they're going to jump right into this, but I think you're right. You hit on something that maybe she, I don't know. I didn't really uh, dissect exactly what was going on. I, I know we just had to get someone else at the time, but you know, it could have been just not feeling comfortable with those services and with, the parent coaching, especially. Right. So when we, when we started this project, there were, there were two things actually. And, and uh, some of the work that you had done, um, Todd at, at Utah state was really helpful to us. We reached out to colleagues in Australia because Australia had actually been um, providing teleservices for quite a while. They, you know, the talk about mm -hmm. a rural, <laughs> a rural mm -hmm. area. Um, one of the people I spoke with said that it, you know, it took her five hours on a plane ride and then four hours in a Jeep to get to, you know, the sheep station where the <laughs> family lived. And so that wasn't going to be a viable way of providing services. Um, right. but we, um, 
we really did look at at um, what we could learn from everyone around us and see what how that could be adapted to to our community where we certainly have rural areas in in Connecticut and Massachusetts where we started but we actually found you know urban areas can be just as daunting it's it you know traffic mm-hmm. <laughs> traffic makes it really difficult to to sure. get to someone's house or for the family to come to us and um, especially public transportation can be daunting with a with a baby or toddler so mm-hmm. we we really um, started out deciding that we wanted um, we wanted to evaluate the project and so we partnered with uh, the University of Massachusetts Donahue Institute as our external evaluator. And uh, they began with us when we started designing the project and uh, they're still working with us on, um, on evaluations of various aspects of our, of our telepractice program. We call our telepractice T visits um, mm-hmm. and uh, that it's an acronym visits is uh, virtual intervention services for infants and toddlers. Um, and, uh, but we really had this vision that home visits and center-based visits would be supplemented by T visits. And so from the beginning, we were hoping to get the kind of data that would push public policy um, people in our area to accept telepractice as a, a viable way of delivering services and then COVID happened and then they had to <laughs> accept it where they what they wanted to or not right right exactly what yeah so so uh we were very fortunate and I think most of the people in in the deaf and hard of hearing field who have been providing telepractice have been doing it primarily with uh private funding with grant funding and foundation funding um, because it, the um, the landscape uh, was a little uncertain for how, how to get public funding. But we um, we decided that once we saw how successful this was and um, mm-hmm. how, how much it improved not only access, but even things like um, reducing missed appointments, you know, mm-hmm. um, we, we found that uh, when we looked at, at our telepractice visits, we really had more than a you know ninety five percent show rate <laughs> mm-hmm. as as compared to to in person. Um, but really, more importantly, we found that all of these things we had worried about really weren't big issues. Um, parents and and our professionals both um, said that they really felt that they were establishing very good relationships. Um, and um, that, and parents. I think in one of the studies, ninety-seven percent of the parents said that they had uh, learned new skills that they could carry over in everyday activities. Um, they loved the fact that that it was more accessible. You know, that services were more accessible. Um, so once we knew that that um, both the professionals and the parents were were seeing huge advantages. Then our next um, hurdle was to figure out how to move the policy needle. And um, we worked in in Massachusetts um, and New York. We were making some headway. In fact, Massachusetts Department of Public Health, which is our Part C um, lead agency, they uh, agreed to a pilot project that was initially for one year and then extended to three years where they actually provided funding 
for us to do um, tea visits. And in New York, we were having some similar success in getting policymakers to, <laughs> to pay attention. Mm-hmm. And uh, so we, we started meeting with, with them and asked them, what do we need to do? How can we, how can we get to the next step? Um, and they said that really it's going to come down to insurers who provide a lot of the basic, you know, support behind the scenes. Um, Medicaid and then private insurers are going to be key if um, if this is going to be a, a you know universally reimbursable practice. And uh, and so we said, okay, that's fine. What do we need to do? <laughs> what do we need to bring to the um, to to these discussions, and they said, you know, it would be really helpful to have a sense of um, what's happening nationally. So if lots of other states are doing this, uh, Massachusetts and, and New York, where we were starting, don't want to fall behind. They don't want to mm-hmm. look like this. <laughs> and so if you can gather some information for us about what's happening across the country, that would be really helpful. Um, mm-hmm. And Yeah. And that's the point at which we... Um, we had this great opportunity to team up with uh, Brown University's um, public policy program. Mm -hmm. Um, And we, um, we found two wonderful graduate students in that program who worked with us full time for three months um, as part of their master's program, gathering information um, and helping to put together the recommendations that we were going to make to our state. So that's how that national scan came about. Well, just yeah, looking through it, I'm very impressed. With yeah, and it's difficult with early intervention that it is so different from state to state. I did early intervention both in North Carolina and in Utah, and now have licensed to do telepractice, not necessarily through early intervention in Idaho and California as well. <laughs> and everything is so different from state to state, and. I am pretty sure that in Utah, we don't even bill private insurance for early intervention services. And in North Carolina, that was a big source of Mm -hmm. the funding for early intervention services was private insurance. So it's hard to um, keep track of and to know what's going on. So this was a nice study that summarized what is happening in each state. Yeah, it was actually amazing to us how how much of a patchwork <laughs> there is right um and um you know we we knew that each state had had sort of different different criteria and even whether there was any telemedicine legislation or tele anything legislation mm-hmm. uh, differed quite a bit but what we found was that um yeah in states like massachusetts uh, public insurance in particular really helps to fund early intervention through our Department of Public Health. And then the Department of Public Health is considered the payer of last resort. Um, Mm -hmm. But even in that case, even when the Department of Public Health, for example, wanted to move forward, they needed to figure out a way to get insurance to to agree to pay. And so that was really our, (laughs) that was our conundrum. Mm -hmm. We found, you know, in some states, like in California, where I spent so many years, um, there were informal deals that were set up with Medicaid, but it wasn't even statewide. It was Mm. um, county to county. And so just imagine, you know, (laughs) if you're a, um, 
you know, a parent living in one county and just over the other county line, the rules are all different. Uh, so there was yeah. no consistent uh, framework in, in California for, uh, for reimbursement at all. Um, New York was fascinating because there actually is legislation in the state of New York to reimburse early intervention telepractice, but the infrastructure doesn't exist to put it into place. And so it's sort of the legislatively it can happen, but the various agencies that actually run early intervention had not um, gotten together and figured out if they wanted to do it and how. So what a, <laughs> what a, it's and, crazy. Yeah. 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 Usually it's, you know, people like you that are like, okay, we want to do this. We want to push it forward. Not the other way around. You have to, you know, the legislation's there and then you have to build the program. It seems like it's usually the other way around. Right. Right. And I think the, um, the toughest part is that policymakers are often very focused on telemedicine, but mm-hmm early intervention is, is not usually front and center on their, their radar. So they may have legislation regarding telemedicine. And I think especially post-pandemic, they're going to have a big push for telemedicine. Um, but we have to be sure that early intervention is part of that discussion and, and other forms of, of teletherapy beside early intervention. Well, that uh, sort of brings up a question that I have, Barbara, because, you know, within our fields of, of hearing, within hearing loss, the hearing loss area, you, we can have teachers of the deaf right. who are providing early intervention services and speech language pathologists. And in some cases, you may run into audiologists, pediatric audiologists or educational audiologists doing some, some, work, some of that work, too. The teachers of the deaf. What did you find there? Can they in Massachusetts deliver those services versus other states? So in, um, in Massachusetts, teachers of the deaf are, uh, are qualified, can be qualified to be early intervention providers. We're not talking teletherapy, but just in person. And mm-hmm. uh, teacher of the deaf services are reimbursable. And our state basically made a deal, I think, with Medicaid and with, um, with private insurers to basically set a flat rate for all um, providers, all specialty, we're called specialty providers, whether mm-hmm. you're a teacher of the deaf, an audiologist, or a speech pathologist, um, you, the, the reimbursement rate is the same, and uh, the insurers loved that. <laughs> so they weren't, it actually, they felt like they were saving money and it allowed us a lot more flexibility. But in other states, that's not the case. In other states, um, the reimbursement from insurers kind of drives who can actually provide early intervention services. So we're not going to see that consistency around the, around the country. Right, right. And I think, you know, it'll be interesting to see how how that emerges as we go forward, because, uh, for example, in the field of vision loss, uh, the people that are providing early intervention services are almost always uh, teachers, not Mm -hmm. um, Mm -hmm. allied health professionals. And so um, they're going to have to (laughs) sort of Mm -hmm. um, come up with a broader way of looking at who can 
who can deliver services. But right now, it's again, it's really a patchwork across the states. And I know there's um, quite a few early intervention programs that are also going to like a one service delivery, one um, service person delivery model too, where they have, you know, it might be that the SLP consults and then there's only one person that is their point of contact with the team. I know that there's some states that are doing that model also. And so that's another issue where we have to have that, you know, kind of think about, do we have that same level of reimbursement, whether it is the teacher or the SLP that is doing the telepractice right, specifically. Right. And even, even the way that works, you know, in person from state to state is so different. Um, in, in our state, in Massachusetts, and I, I'm fairly certain in most of California, actually, uh, teachers are considered that they can be the, a primary service deliverer. In our state, in Massachusetts, uh, we actually ha- are subcontractors with um, the generic early intervention agencies. So there's a whole network of them, and then we subcontract as specialists. Um, and the nice thing is that families can actually get services from more than one specialty provider. They don't have to choose. And in the field of hearing loss, that's a big deal because um, parents are often not sure if they want to go the listening and spoken language route or um, the ASL route or some combination. Um, and so the nice thing in Massachusetts is that families don't have to choose. They can, they can start working um, with more than one specialty provider and then make a decision as the child is turning three, what direction they want to go in. I've always, yeah, I've always heard that um, it's great to have 50 states and U.S. all these you know U.S. territories, but we also have 50 different ways of doing things. Yeah, exactly. And and that's that's the challenge we have. And and our great country is every state's different. And and as you're finding, even within the state, from county to county, it can be a different service model. And I can only imagine the frustration that among the professionals and the parents trying to figure out how to navigate all that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, it was interesting as, um, as we were doing this scan, a few States kind of stood out as potential models, um, Mm -hmm. that we could sort of point to, um, as, as our own, you know, as our States were, were developing their policies. Um, so for example, Colorado, uh, really started to stand out as a model, um, Mm -hmm. And we know that Colorado helped helped push us into universal newborn hearing screening, with this, mm-hmm. um, and really early on had pretty extensive early intervention in the certainly in the field of, of hearing loss in children. Um, but what what's really nice in in that state is not only that that reimbursement is available for telepractice, but also um, training and um, and quality standards for, um, for providing telepractice. Because certainly now we're in this really interesting situation where every, <laughs> I was just telling, mm-hmm. telling somebody, everybody and their cousin is doing telepractice during the pandemic. And yes. um, we don't really know much about the quality of those, those services. People were forced to jump into providing teleservices without any preparation at all. Um, and 
that, you know, so as we look at uh, data that some people are collecting, you know, the, the, we don't know what the quality <laughs> of those services were in the preparation of those professionals. But uh, some states are, are doing, a couple of states really are doing a nice job um, at least requiring some training and, and uh, if not special certification, but certainly some training. I think here in Ohio, they in the state licensure law for speech pathology and audiology, they say you have to be trained and have the knowledge and skills to do it. But there's um, there's really no re, you know no enforcement for that. I mean, right? It's kind of like what Asha says. You know, you don't don't do it. You know, if you don't how to if you don't know how to treat someone ethically you should refer them but that doesn't always happen right because uh, people right. just want to try to treat someone and collect the the money or the you know the insurance without fully being um qualified to serve that patient um and i think the same thing especially this past year obviously it's a little bit different scenario with the pandemic where you really had no choice and everyone had to do telepractice like you're saying but uh, ideally, people should be trained before they do it. And, and uh, I think what will come out of uh, the pandemic is a bit of people rushed in and jumped in and did it. And we saw probably some really terrible services being done uh, because people were having to literally, do, you know, go home on a Friday, come back on Monday, ready to go with telepractice, you know, and they have never done it before. Right. Um, right. I got, a, so, yeah, yeah. I, I got a couple of panicky phone calls around March 13th, 2020, um, from two different agencies that said, oh, my gosh, you know, we know you've been doing it. What can you, you know, <laughs> what mm -hmm. can you tell me right now on the phone that, that I need to know to prepare our, our practitioners? So, you know, we had this hour-long phone conversations <laughs> where I was trying to right. sort of, uh, uh, download <laughs> lots mm -hmm. of information. But you're right that people had to jump in and uh, often with very little preparation. And I, I think the biggest challenge has been um, for people that are used to providing therapy and in, in sort of a more thera therapy clinical model um, to make the switch to a coaching model and mm -hmm. um, being a guide by your side rather than the direct deliverer of services through a screen to a baby uh, that doesn't come naturally to, to some people and um, learning how to be a good coach is really the, you know, what we've learned is the, is the real key to, to doing practice well. And I wonder if that differs too in those States where it is a contract provider that, you know, if it's all, they're all working for one agency, then you can kind of standardize like the information that everyone in that agency is getting. And when you have contract providers, then you might have some that have, you know, a more of a coaching background and some that have more of a clinical background and mm -hmm. that, that, that changes. Cause that's definitely been um, my experience too. I learned a lot more about coaching when I uh, moved from, you know, I had the background in auditory verbal. So I had that background in coaching, but as far as implementing it more widely in um, early intervention, I feel like coming from North Carolina to Utah and with one agency that we were all doing that, then I learned a lot more about it and implemented it more than I was before. And 
And from what I've heard from everyone that they changed when they went to telepractice too, they're like, I thought I was doing parent coaching. Apparently okay. I wasn't. Like, you know, when we first started in, in get, we're getting ready in 2012, 2013, uh, we invited um, Arlene Stradler Brown to come out and, mm-hmm. and help, help uh, train our staff. And uh, she had just given a talk. I think it was entitled, if you think you're doing family centered uh, practice, try telepractice. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I think, because um, you cannot jump through the screen and rescue the parent, you can't, mm-hmm. you, know, you can't help them get that hearing aid in, you can't, um, and the baby is not going to interact with you very long nope. over, over the screen. So um, I think that it, what we were, we were hoping to see, and I, I think we're starting to get some data to, to verify it is that people who actually were doing coaching through telepractice found that they were coaching better in person as well um, mm-hmm. because they, they sort of had learned, had to learn how to do it. I agree. It, it certainly has informed my coaching, uh, you know, over the years uh, going from telepractice to in-person and back and forth, depending on the family, yeah. it certainly has sort of, up, upgraded the level of coaching I've done, for yeah. sure. We also saw, and I, I think this is the exciting part, we saw definitely during the pandemic, but as we were collecting data as well earlier, we saw that some children were making much better progress when they were getting, when the family was getting teletherapy than when mm-hmm. they were just getting in-person services. Mm-hmm. Um, and we you know, I would attribute that primarily to the fact that, you know, we we are really empowering parents in, in telepractice to be the, the main, you know, <laughs> the main people interacting with their children. And there's so much research showing how important it is. But Um, when when parents are um, they they are able to carry it through the rest of the day, not just when the you know when the specialist is there. So we we've been saying for quite a while that, um, that teletherapy has some advantages over face to face. Certainly, face to face has some advantages as well. But um, a hybrid of the two would. You know, is really what what we were thinking about as the ideal, mm-hmm. if if possible. Right. Yeah. That that's certainly sort of where I've fallen with many of my families. Um, some families just want to come in. I mean, especially now post pandemic, or as yeah. we get to be move into that post pandemic period of time, um, it's like they've had a little bit of. Uh, uh, computer overload with, you know, home teaching and, and kids being at home and on the computer. And, you know, they just want a break from all that and come in, you know, and see me. So, um, but I think the ideal is probably going to do a, it will be a hybrid of the two um, for most families. Yeah, we were, so we started kind of thinking about all these advantages. Another thing that happened as we, as we were implementing this pilot project uh, in Massachusetts, and then expanding, we expanded telepractice at Clark to all of our campuses. And so all of our campuses are, are now 
doing tea visits, but um, we found that it was, there were other things like it's easier to arrange interpreter services for families who don't have English as a first language. Mm-hmm. Um, our state was really interested in having us do co-treatment with other specialists. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And wow, was that, that was so much easier when we didn't have to have two people arriving in person at the same, <laughs> at the same right. time. Um, and so we actually tripled the number of co-treats that we were able to do when we, when we um, started using tele, uh, teletherapy. That's that's an interesting idea too. I've been on some, um, we had a auditory, uh, not auditory, um, a AAC team that we would had an OT on it and an SLP on it. And usually a student intern. And sometimes we'd show up to a family's house with like six people (laughs) and it was a little overwhelming (laughs) and, and it was from a university. So yeah, you usually had students with you too. And um, just thinking about that, the like supervision that would be so much easier over it Mm -hmm. or, you know, like mentoring or someone observing a session and how much easier that would be over a telepractice session than here we pull up to your house in a van, literally. <laughs> the, the entourage. <laughs> the entourage comes right. in. And and let's just have a natural interaction with your child while six of us watch you. <laughs> right. Right. It's pretty, yeah, it's so intimidating for parents. And I, I've had parents say also, you know, that they love not having to worry about whether the house is clean. <laughs> right. Um, <laughs> But you know the other the other thing that you mentioned just now, Kim, is uh, also a huge advantage uh, that we hadn't quite thought about, and that is supervision and training. So you know we used to really struggle with how to supervise people that were doing home visits because um, if you go out there, then it's you're another person, and and it's right. it's kind of intrusive. And we we had done some recording and had people, you know, record themselves, but that also gets a little intimidating. And somehow just to be able to sit together and watch, um, you know, a recorded Zoom session or a FaceTime session um, was such a nice way of, of providing supervision and mentoring and actually training our graduate students too. Yeah. I think the recording is, is, an incredible piece that people don't utilize as much. Yeah. And we actually, um, we asked our, our Brown (laughs) consultants to look into whether uh, recording was even allowed for Mm -hmm. uh, state to state. It looks like it is in most states. There are only uh, three or four that did not allow recording of tele um, telemedicine sessions. Um, yeah, I thought that was interesting. I think Utah was one of them that didn't allow it. <laughs> right. Um, but yeah, how, how wonderful to be able to have a recording that, a, you know, the parent, one parent can share with the one who wasn't able to be there or with the grandparents right. who are. Um, so the recording, we struggled a little bit with um, how to make sure that we're, you know, we want to make sure the recordings are, are kept securely and that uh, parents weren't going to post them on YouTube, you know. <laughs> um, right. Uh, but once we figured out some of those security measures, um, making recordings available to parents has been a huge, huge plus. It's, 
it's a great video record of the child's progress too. It's just, it's just a win-win for everyone. I mean, able to have that. Yeah. You can do language samples from the mm-hmm. recordings. Mm-hmm. Right. So Barbara, what, what's the next, uh, what's the next step with you've, you've compiled a lot of information here on, on a national scale. And I know you, you are working to show the policymakers and the decision makers in Massachusetts and, and probably all the campuses where you guys are, are located, uh, how to, you know, how to better or improve uh, telepractice service delivery, especially at the early intervention level. But what do you want to get out of this study going forward? Well, I think um, our th- I think our next step is to kind of hit the reset button. <laughs> you know, we were just at the point of of having um, having we actually had set up meetings with our DPH Department of Public Health partners and a couple of key people from uh, from the the insurers, the public insurers. Um, and I think that really is our next step uh, to mm-hmm. now come back to them and say, okay. Um, Here's mm-hmm. here's some here's some information. Uh, this is he, here's some states that are really doing this well. Um, here's the data that show shows that that this is an effective and well received mode. Um, and find out really from them what um, what they need. Do they do they think that uh, are they ready to go without legislation or or regulation? Um, and I think. My, my sense is that, you know, one of the silver linings of the pandemic is that um, this is now just sort of more acceptable. Um, mm-hmm. But how, how we move forward, I think, is going to take uh, an effort in every one of our states, again, because there is this patchwork and there is no federal um, legislation or, or federal guideline. Um, so our next step really is, is to... Um, reschedule those <laughs> those appointments that we had. We actually had one scheduled for March 27th or 28th, 2020, and uh, just reschedule some of those meetings. The, the uh, challenge for us is, is uh, the some of the key people have now changed. They're different people than, than the ones we were. Right. We've had some retirements and uh, some new relationships to build. But I think that really is our our next step. And then at at Clark, we're going to be looking state by state at who the key players are and um, who we really need to meet with. Um, And my sense also is that um, we're going to need to to speak to our legislators directly, not not just to the insurers. Um, And one of the best ways to do that is sometimes to bring a parent along, <laughs> along mm-hmm. to the meeting with you. You know, we we are seen as sometimes having um, a particular perspective, but when mm-hmm. when legislators hear from directly from their constituents um, about the impact of these services, I think it can be really, um, really an important way to get the message across. So we're really in the in the stages of of kind of taking a couple of steps back and then looking at um, who, who we need to get, <laughs> get mm-hmm. face-to-face with, <laughs> maybe starting with Zoom, but 
um, who we really need to contact and um, start again, start up those conversations. And I think the, this, um, this national scan is helpful, although I think our goal really is to emphasize the, um, the states that are doing it particularly well and what we've learned from them. Right. See what I think can be replicated. State, yeah, and every state wants to be, you know, best practice, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> or pointed mm-hmm. to as a, um, as a model. So, um, but I think the other question I, and I don't know what, what you're sensing, but I think we need to do a better job of teaming up with uh, the telemedicine folks, mm-hmm. um, because I think they're going to be pushing ahead with full steam. Um, mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. I feel like we need to make our voices heard with them when they say, when they push that kind of legislature for word that we're not saying we're making them not forget about us. Too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, I know. In in our state, right before the pandemic, just as we were gathering the data, there it turned out that there were three pieces of legislation before our state legislature re- re- relating mostly to telemedicine. Mm-hmm. Um, but and everything I think stopped at that point. Um, none of right. none of that legislation went forward, but it will. And um, the more we can sort of be tag along <laughs> and mm-hmm. get the benefit of, of, um, of the telemedicine um, allies, the better. Right. Well, I think one thing to, to, to think about Barbara, and I, and I don't know the answer to this, but um, you know, right now at the federal level in Congress, there's, you know, some big bills, hopefully working their way through Congress uh, that will be passed that will hopefully leave a lot of the, the, the new allowances for telemedicine and telepractice in place, even after COVID. Mm -hmm. Um, And I know ASHA has been a part of that in AAA and, and, uh, but I don't know, I don't recall, there may be some organization there, but I don't recall any organization focusing on teachers, teachers of the deaf, who may be among them. It's all, from what I recall, it was all allied health and, and medicine and nursing. And because, you know, for a lot of this, like you're saying, a lot of this, uh, the, the big push for telemedicine has come from the physicians because they want to practice across state lines. Right, right. And, and that's been uh, sort of something that they've been focused on for for years and the American telemedicine association has been really pushing all that. And then COVID hits and now everyone has jumped on and, and luckily there is, there seems to be much more of a um, uh, receptivity to it at the federal level, Mm -hmm. but let's, you know, I'm hoping that the teachers that may be providing early intervention don't get lost in all that. Right. And I, I, it's a really good point. Um, And I think I, one of the things that we learned when we did this scan is that there is a consortium of states, um, not quite half of the states, but a, a almost half of the states have formed a consortium uh, to allow for, for practice across state lines uh, for allied health professionals. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. But um, you're right that there's, there's um, there isn't kind of the same, 
I guess, lobbying organization um, for teachers. The, the one organization I'm thinking that could be very helpful is um, the Council on Education of the Deaf. Um, right. And that's part of the larger organization of the Council, Council for Exceptional Children. Right. Um, and possibly um, there, there also may be some, some support from organizations like the National Center for Hearing Assessment and Management. Mm-hmm. But it's going to, you're right, it's really going to take some attention to the range of practitioners mm-hmm. <laughs> that, that are, are uh, qualified to provide these services. That's right. Well, Barb, this has been educational for me. Now, we've really enjoyed having you on. I think it's time now for our um, moment of Zen. Okay. <laughs> As she says. <laughs> um. This is this is our version of the Proust um, questionnaire. So, if you ever watched uh, Inside the Actor Studio, no, I never have. No, I never have. So, you know that was on for a while on Bravo, and they would you know interview these actors, and at the end, the host would ask these ten questions, and just you just respond how you want. You can one word answers, or you can elaborate as much as you want, or as little as you want. Okay. okay? So uh, we'll jump in. So what's the most used app on your phone? Oh, my uh, photos. Photos. Good, good. Um, what's the last TV series you streamed? Uh, see, I just streamed. Um, it's a it's a French TV series called uh, Call My Agent. Huh. <laughs> it's about, cool. It's about a... Um, a talent agency in Paris. Okay, cool. Uh, what's your favorite book or a favorite book? Uh, favorite book right now. I'm just, you know, <laughs> just have a new favorite starting yesterday called Good. the boy, the mole, the horse and the fox. Have you heard of yes. it? Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. Just really um, highly recommend it. it. Beautiful drawings and, and wonderful wonderful um, ideas about life. Awesome. Um, what's your favorite genre of music? Uh, folk. I, I pictured you more of a, a metalhead. But, uh, <laughs> folk, just kidding. Oh, that's good. Yeah. Um, what's your favorite food? Oh, it changes from, <laughs> from moment to moment, but um Ooh, favorite food. One one of my favorite, I'd say pasta. <laughs> awesome. Um, what's your what's the most exotic place you've been or the farthest place you've been? Um farthest. Um actually Israel uh would be mm-hmm. the farthest. Um we're about to uh take a four-day trip to St. Croix. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I'll let you know how that goes. <laughs> that sounds great. Um, what's the scariest thing you've ever done? And and scary can be defined in any way you want to define it. Well, I would say scariest and also most rewarding is having children. No one else has said that. I've <laughs> <laughs> had that a couple times. <laughs> the scariest thing is, oh, definitely having kids is the scariest thing. In a, so, Yep. Um, 
what's uh what's your pet peeve or a pet peeve um i guess i my pet peeve is um narrow thinking or um people who are not willing to to think outside the box mm-hmm. very good I, I i share that um if you didn't choose your current profession, what profession would you like to try? You know, it's interesting. It's changed through the years, but mm-hmm. um, I would say I would say pediatrician. Very nice. That's great. And this is the only uh, one of the only questions I think that was in the original Proust. Um, <laughs> okay. Let's last one. If heaven exists. What would you like to hear God say when you arrive at the pearly gates? Uh, welcome. <laughs> <laughs> glad, glad to have you in. <laughs> great. That's awesome. Well, Barbara, it's been great chatting and, and learning more about the scan and, and some of these issues related to early intervention and telepractice and to hear more about what you guys are doing at Clark. So, Please come back and and give us an update in in another six months or so. And we'd love to check in and and see how things are going. Well, Todd, thank you. And and thank you for the work you're doing. I think, you know, together we're we're really trying to ensure that people don't think about telepractice as second best, but Mm -hmm. they think about it as as, um, a a really high quality possibility um, and a way of reaching families in, in new and better ways. And how could someone reach out to you if they wanted to learn more? Best is my email address. And is there a way for you to send sure. that out? Yes. Uh, feel free to contact me at my Clark email address. Um, I'd love to hear from people and uh, hear hear what others are doing and and see how we can work together. That's great. Well, thank you again, Barbara. Good luck with everything. Thank you. Thank you. And Kim, thank you as well. So that was the interview with Barbara Hecht at Clark Boston. Hope you enjoyed that interview that we did over on Telepractice Today. Just a quick plug for that podcast that if you're interested in telepractice and you don't subscribe to that one yet, I encourage you to do so. It is a great podcast that I do with Kim Dutro-Allen, one of my former grad students, who is just a phenomenal speech-language pathologist and telepractitioner herself. And... I would like to invite you to join us at the 3C Digital Media Network. So we are looking for content creators. We're looking for people who may have an idea for a new podcast, or you would like to be a guest on a podcast, or maybe you want to present some webinars, or maybe a course. So whatever you may have an interest in, We would love to talk to you. So you can email me at Todd, T-O-D-D, at 3cdigitalmedianetwork.com, and I will be in touch, I promise. And with that, we'll be back in two weeks with another episode of the Listening Brain Podcast. Until then, be safe and be kind. This has been a production of the 3C Digital Media Network.